Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Sadhu Johnston, City Manager for the City of Vancouver, British Columbia. Early in his career, Sadhu was the founder and executive director of the Cleveland Green Building Coalition. He also served as Chicago's first chief environmental officer. He was a co-founder of the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, and he's a published author. Sadhu is in town this week for the National Shared Mobility Summit put on by the Shared Use Mobility Center. Sadhu, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So it's been some time since you left Chicago. And while you were here, one of the big items was, of course, the Chicago Climate Action Plan. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering um, if you can share some of your thoughts now that we're, what, more than a decade removed from that plan, which was quite notable at its time for a big city to embark on a plan of that scale and scope. Mm-hmm. At the time, it did feel very new, and many of the questions that we were asking felt like first-time questions. And now, looking back, it's um, it's amazing to me how quickly most cities are asking those questions, and um, how it's um, become a real area of study and, and a field of inquiry. Um, and you know, I think the thing that was unique about what we were doing was really looking at the climate adaptation side of it and trying to understand how our changing climate would impact the city, what we needed to do to be more resilient and withstand those changes and integrate that work with our our efforts to reduce our our overall greenhouse gas emissions. And that, um, in the past, before we did that plan, it was largely cities thinking about how to reduce their carbon emissions. And I think Chicago's plan was the first to really integrate those two. And it's quite um, easy that the things you do to mitigate or to adapt to climate could make your overall carbon emissions worse. And so that was a a first for us to be thinking about those two and and the, the relationship between them. And it's now impacted cities' efforts across the globe. And we're seeing the impacts of climate on cities. So what felt like a very avant-garde effort is now quite mainstream. That was, for me, interesting to have been a part of that. So urban legend has it that then Mayor Daly heard a presentation by you in Cleveland and basically snatched you up and brought you to Chicago. Is, huh. is that how it went? I didn't do a presentation, but he did come for a tour in Cleveland. And as you said, I was doing the Cleveland Green Building Coalition work. We had purchased a very cool old heritage building in downtown Cleveland that was had been abandoned for a good number of years, and we were bringing it back to life and creating it as a center for nonprofit environmental organizations and using green building technology to do that. So it was one of the first projects in the country that integrated heritage, kind of historic preservation, and green building. And he toured it, and I got to be the tour guide and and showed him around. And I did get a call after that 
saying why don't you come out and meet the mayor and see if there's interest in working here. And I said no originally. And um, then my wife said, what? Get on the phone. Call them back. So I did. So one of your roles there was as commissioner of the Department of Environment, which no Mm -hmm. longer exists. Right. I'm wondering, um, since you've left Chicago and in your work in Vancouver, if you have reflections on what that means. There's been articles as recently as last month, um, editorial in the Sun-Times saying, you know, we're way past time to bring that back. Does the structure matter? Do the titles matter? Um, Curious if you have any reflections on that. Yeah, as you mentioned, I was the commissioner for the department for a little while there. It played a few different roles here in the city of Chicago. I think the structure matters. I'm not sure it needs to be a standalone department. A lot of, I think, what needs to happen is that it's prioritized in the organization and it needs to be a priority for the leadership of the organization. For me, I found I was sometimes more effective when I was in the mayor's office. And I was in the mayor's office in a couple different roles. One, as you mentioned, is as the chief environmental officer, and that was the deputy chief of staff role. And I think that being in a centralized location actually affords greater ability to work across the silos versus being one department in a sea of other departments and being such a small one. It's hard to influence other departments. So I, I prefer the model of a, having a centralized dream team focused on making things happen across the organization. And I don't know the current dynamic here well enough in Chicago, but in other cities, Vancouver included, we've got a small team of kind of sustainability leaders, and they've been in different departments, depending on what the focus needed to be for that work at the time. And as city manager, I had them reporting directly to me for a good number of years, because I was really trying to drive the integration of that agenda into every single department. And when you're a standalone department competing for resources and for profile, it's sometimes harder to get the work done. So I think um, having it centralized in a, in, in a place like the mayor's office or the city manager's office does afford it greater ability for influence. I do think in Chicago, it's it's lost its profile. Mayor Daly really had a focus and saw how the tools that that approach can bring can really help solve problems in the city, rather than being an expense that needs to be juggled with other things. He really saw it as solving urban heat island and urban flooding and creating a global brand and creating a kind of urban experience that uh, is quite unique to Chicago for such a large city. And I think he saw those things as as really helping to achieve his vision for the city rather than, oh, I got to figure out how to justify spending money on something that is peripheral to my core mandate. And I think as soon as it becomes an expense that needs to compete with policing or teacher salaries, the basic functions of the city, it will inevitably fall lower on the on the radar and i think that's that's what's happened in the in the the more recent years from my very outside perspective in the same vein another big difference between chicago and vancouver is we are not a city with a manager form of government Mm -hmm. i'm curious what it's like as a city manager especially in a, a city like vancouver and 
what the practical differences are under that form of government? Yeah, that's a good question. It's very different. The Chicago system, in a way, gives greater flexibility for the political leadership to shape the agenda and to drastically change it very quickly. And I don't think that has as negative of an impact when you have someone like Mayor Daley, who's here for a very long time, can maintain consistent vision. Like Millennium Park probably would never have happened, certainly not in the way that it happened with the incredible art and urban integration that you got if you didn't have consistent long-term leadership. It was just such negative dialogue in the community about it until the day it opened and then it was amazing but you couldn't have done that if you didn't have some longer term leadership i don't think in vancouver you get that kind of continuity not through the political leadership but through the bureaucracy so mayor and council appoint a city manager and then the city manager is responsible for implementing the vision and hires and fires all of the leaders in the organization. So when you see a political change over, we just had one last um, November, you don't see the suite of leaders in the organization changing. So you get a certain level of continuity for the implementation of, of our plans. And a good example of that is transportation planning we in the 90s adopted a transportation plan that fundamentally changed our priorities from designing the city for the car to designing the city for the pedestrian and the hierarchy the modal hierarchy was flipped and now the pedestrian and then the cyclist and then the public transportation and then goods movement were prioritized in that order and the private car was at the bottom of the list and that despite many mayors and councils coming and going since then, has shaped every transportation plan that we've had. And so that multi-decade focus on creating an urban experience that supports the pedestrian has created complete communities in a way that I don't think we would have had if we had the political changeover as many times. In the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a 75% increase in the people living downtown. We've seen a very considerable increase in our jobs downtown. And yet we've seen a 20% decrease in the number of cars entering downtown on a daily basis. And that continuity of direction, I believe, comes out of having consistent staff leadership to implement those types of plans. So you get some mayors and councils coming in and some would support bike infrastructure and others would support public transit and some would, wouldn't really support either. But there's those plans that are being implemented by the staff over those, those multiple decades. So even if there's maybe less emphasis on one mode over another, the fundamental shift in direction hasn't happened. And um, that's, I think, because you get that kind of continuity in in this the core staff in the organization so i think there's there's real pros and cons to both um i as a city manager uh, self-interestedly i guess appreciate the city manager structure because you get a mayor and council that really shape the direction but you get non-political leadership from the top so the contracts the hiring and the firing those are based on 
not political appointments, but they're based on trying to find the best people in the world to do the work. And so I've had the opportunity to bring folks in from actually our planning director, Gil Kelly, came from San Francisco. And before that, he was the director of planning in Portland and Berkeley. And so has really unique West Coast cities experience that we were able to bring in. Um, and, and, and he is still planning director under the new mayor and council, even though some of the focus may be shifting. They've just called for us to create, I think, probably our first citywide plan which is really exciting. So the mayor and council get to shape our direction, but the, the folks on the ground remain the same. So you initially kind of came on the scene in Cleveland with the Cleveland Green Building Coalition. Is that where you're from originally? I'm not, although I went to Oberlin College, and that's what got me into Ohio. And uh, before that, I had been uh, in... New York, and I um, spent my high school years in Boulder, Colorado. And before that, as a kid, I moved all over. I was born in England and raised in India for much of my childhood, and then in Europe. So I kind of got dragged around all over the place. Did that influence your interest in sort of people, places, and sustainability? I think it had to have, yeah. My real interest in cities came out of my studies at Oberlin and uh, and Vassar in New York um, recognizing and I kind of came to this from a passion of environmental challenges and opportunities and it felt like there was a kind of negative sense of the role that cities are playing globally in terms of the environmental impact it was this kind of move or sense for a long time that cities were spewing out pollution and gobbling up natural resources. And in my studies, kind of realized that cities are the solution, or at least part of the solution. And so that's kind of what got me excited about going and working in Cleveland. And so I started a speaker series, actually. Cleveland was really struggling, like many kind of Rust Belt cities, around its identity and who it was going to be when it grew up. So I wanted to bring some of the leading ideas around ecological design and, and this kind of the, this new way of, of developing our communities into Cleveland to say like that we can, we can evolve this city and go from kind of the industrial rust belt to a, a green oasis and use the infrastructure that we have, the, the manufacturing infrastructure and the transportation, logistics, all that kind of stuff to reshape who we are and, and how are we, we are on the planet, but also the types of economic opportunity. So that was bringing in some of the leading folks in the world that are doing this work and helping Clevelanders rethink what we're doing. And so that was kind of part of what we were doing at the Cleveland Green Building Coalition. And, uh, and just that was for context, that was almost 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that was almost 20 years ago. So we brought, yeah, folks like Bill McDonough and people that were wouldn't necessarily come to Cleveland or that Clevelanders wouldn't necessarily be exposed to. And we'd bring them in for two or three days and just get them in front of counselors or the mayor and speakers and businesses and just kind of trying to show Cleveland what's happening outside, that, that there's really a chance. Why not manufacture wind turbines? Why not be, you know, being on the Great Lakes like that? Why not focus on water technologies and green jobs and 
And so Van Jones and people like that were just starting to come out on the scene, and it was a chance to help Clevelanders see the excitement and the potential that this green revolution could offer a community like that. And what it got me is exposed to those folks too, and um, and just about the possibility that that those approaches could have for our the built environment, not just new communities, but existing communities. And I think it's interesting the some of the parallels between Cleveland and Chicago and the lessons learned for, you know, Rust Belt cities, um, that some of the green innovation can not only check the boxes you would expect, but also this image and identity. And it does feel like Chicago, for example, 20 years ago was really leading and maybe some of that has faded a bit. But I'm wondering from your travels and your work, um, if you have additional comments on this idea of not only it's the right thing and can be an economic development driver, but also help a community overcome image and identity issues. Definitely, for sure. For Chicago, just putting a green roof on City Hall and the amount of media, that global attention that that got, beehives and and then testing the temperature and showing how it was helping to cool the city and, and taking those ideas to green buildings and, and to the street experience changed the experience for visitors, but also just got a ton of media. And for folks that might not have thought about visiting Chicago, they would see an article on our investments in green roofs or different things that we were doing and make them want to come and experience it or um, just change their perception of the community. So I think that definitely had, at least in, in Chicago, um, played a role in, in why that effort was so successful. And you, you, need, you need to counter some of the negative that you're getting, and whether it's violence, gangs, many, many of the challenges. There's a lot of amazing stuff happening. And the focus on redefining the role that cities can play globally helped at a particular time, I think, to broaden the conversation about the role of Chicago on the planet. And I think the same was happening in Cleveland. For Vancouver, when I was here, it was easy to kind of blow off Vancouver as, oh, it's so progressive and so far out there that it's not necessarily doing things that are pertinent to a place like Cleveland or Chicago. It's easy to kind of think, well, yeah, you can do it in Portland or Vancouver, but that, that doesn't really impact us. And what's interesting for me going to Vancouver is how many of the same problems are faced in Vancouver. Even though it's a younger city and growing very, very quickly, there's very significant problems with homelessness and the opioid crisis and the affordability, housing affordability crisis, and even mobility in the 70s, 90 plus percent of trips were made by the private car. And it's only by really focusing on those issues that we're able to address them, just like every other city needs to address their, their challenges. In Vancouver now, a few decades later, 45% of trips are made by the private car. And almost 10% of the commute happens by bike. And so that's a very, sh relatively speaking, in city 
kind of times that that's a very rapid shift that Vancouver has been able to make. And I think it demonstrates that cities, no matter what kind of city you are, by investing in an integrated urban design approach, you can really achieve quite a lot in a relatively short period of time. Maybe we can't achieve as much as we think in the in one year, but we can always achieve more than we think we can in five or 10. And Vancouver, to me, has demonstrated that. Not that we don't have a ton of challenges still, but... Well, of course, as a planner, I love plans, so I'm a bit biased. But I saw a quote attributed to the head of your transit agency that said, the best transportation plan is a great land use plan. Hmm. And of course, I'm interested in that. Um, Also, I think still in society, people think these things happen by accident. Winners and losers, um, mode shift. But I believe with my entire head and heart that they don't happen by accident. It's agreeing on the vision, implementing the vision um, in order to get the desired results. So it sounds like that's what's happened in Vancouver. I think so, yeah. In Vancouver, there's been a very intentional effort to design and build the communities around people rather than around the car. There was a an effort in the 60s to build highways in the city like every other city in North America was doing. And they started, they built one little stretch of it, and then the public really said no. And they did not proceed in building the highways through the city, which would have destroyed a good number of amazing communities, Chinatown and others. And instead, they went a different direction. And so Vancouver is one of the few North American cities that doesn't have a highway. We have no highway. If you drive on the I-5 from Mexico up through Canada, the first traffic light you hit is at the Vancouver border, other than maybe the border crossings. And that's, I think, really influenced the community and driven a different direction, so to speak. So complete communities and transit-oriented development has been a focus and we the down, downtown Vancouver is one of the densest uh, neighborhoods in North America rivaling New York and so that necessitates less car demand and really good integrated planning and it started with a really good I think land use planning but integrating onto, onto that and really seamlessly bringing in transportation planning and as i said earlier bringing in energy planning so now really thinking about district energy and how are we going to heat and cool those neighborhoods so we've got we built our first district energy facility that uses the waste heat from the sewage that's leaving the neighborhood takes the heat out of that and uses that heat to heat the neighborhood and so thinking about how all of those things layer in together including food and growing food in the neighborhood, waste disposal, and so thinking intentionally about all of those things at the beginning of a project rather than at the end. In this case, does the city own the district energy facility? Yes. In this case, in that neighborhood, the city owns the district energy facility. In other neighborhoods, they're owned by private developers or utility companies. But that this was our first uh, neighborhood energy utility where we were really trying to create it around the build out of a new neighborhood and so we're trying to demonstrate new technologies and approaches and so the city owning it made the most sense but we 
it's kind of a business within the city. So we, we run it like a utility with the paybacks and the city lends it money when it needs to expand, but then it gets paid back through the utility rates. And so if you live in the neighborhood that's served by a district energy facility, your greenhouse gas emissions are about 75% less than they would if you lived elsewhere, but your utility bills are within 10% of what you would otherwise be paying. I was especially curious in this, along this idea of replicability, you know, if other cities are considering moving in that direction, um, how you guys have made it work. So it sounds like this was sort of a, a pilot, if you will, um, yeah. <clears throat> for yeah. the city to own it, but there's other private interests doing it as well. Definitely. Yeah. And there's other cities doing it as well. We're certainly not the only one. Chicago has district energy facility that provides cooling to most of the buildings downtown. What we've done is shifted to focusing on how that can be renewably powered and how the city can play a role in where that power comes from. So in most cases, the utility grid, the energy grid is out of the control of the municipality. And so if you want to drive for really low carbon community, I and mean, we've got the target to be 100% renewably powered city before 2050. And if you leave it up to the utilities, you really can't, you can't control that. So we need to partner with the utilities, but we need to use the tools that we have, land use, planning, regulations, zoning approvals, and other tools like the street of right, right of way to get the energy that we need to see in the community, whether it's district energy using waste heat from the sewers, like I said, or renewable natural gas that we can use by cleaning up the gas that comes off of our own landfill and putting that into the into the system. We have different levers that we can pull to, to move toward renewable power in the community. And the land use and transportation and, and all the, the planning components of that obviously are critical. One thing that we... Um, touched on very briefly, but we haven't focused on or talked about is the housing crisis. And I, I really can't let this podcast end without talking about it because Vancouver is facing a housing crisis like almost no other city in, in the world. And it is threatening the very fabric of that community with artists, teachers, government employees, firefighters, and police officers not being able to afford to live in that community. As I said, there's a lot of migration movement into the city, and a lot of those folks that are coming in have money. And a lot of people that have been in the community for a long time are seeing their house values go up so much that they're cashing out and moving out. The over average cost of a single-family home is, is about $1.5 million. So home ownership is kind of out of the reach of many people now. And... We've just started the ramp up of the construction of rental, but we're kind of at this crossroads in a way for the community. Are we going to be a resort town, place a playground for the wealthy of the world, or will we be a livable community for people all across the economic spectrum? And the current council and the former council have all confirmed that we want to be a place that different people can afford to live in, but we're struggling to figure out how to do that and are taking action in many, many different ways 
but like, the homelessness crisis is is growing every year despite efforts we've just finished building modular housing for homeless people which is three-story high buildings that you, if you just walk by you wouldn't even notice that it's that it's modular but we're able to build them in a few months so we built 600 of those in the last year to try to get people directly off the street so the housing crisis is hitting everybody from the homeless are the people that are really living on the edge that are being forced into homelessness because in many cases, garden apartments and other lower cost places have been converted into Airbnb or, or short-term rentals. And so you've got just huge constraints on that type of housing. And so we've now regulated the short-term rental industry in Vancouver. We were seeing a lot of empty homes in Vancouver and so we've instituted one of the first in the world, an empty homes tax. So 1% of your assessed home value is charged to you on your tax bill if you're leaving your home or condo vacant. We're, we've created a ton of different tools and incentives to get more rental built and uh, now have a, a special permitting program for affordable housing. So we're really trying to tackle that problem head on and recognizing that it's threatening the very fabric of our community. So a lot of lessons coming out of Vancouver, many of which are tales of caution. As I said at the very beginning of the podcast, 75% increase in people living downtown. Well, that causes a lot of pressure on any of the affordable housing that, that, that already exists and is pushing a lot of people out. So some tales of caution and some lessons learned and some strategies and tools that maybe other places can take on but uh, that some of those kind of challenges that we're facing in some ways are is a little bit of an existential crisis for us as a city who are we going to be when we grow up we're growing so quickly what was the headline i saw there's now two vacant investor owned units i think i think it was specific to the u.s but it might have been north america for every homeless person so basically bringing those two issues together that we have the ability to address these but it's very clear that it's a big issue and the the barriers are many but someone ran the numbers of Mm. these you know typically internationally um investor fueled units sitting empty Mm -hmm. versus how many people are in desperate need of shelter interesting i hadn't seen that stat so in Vancouver, the empty homes tax, last year was the first year we did it. We made about uh, over $30 million from the tax, and 100% of those proceeds are reinvested in creation and support, protection of affordable housing in the community. How do you enforce or determine what is a vacant unit? There's a self-declaration process. So everyone, every homeowner, uh, condo owner, homeowner in the city must declare whether their home is occupied or not. And you can report your neighbor, or um, we use data and analytics to target who we audit. And um, we're able to conduct a good number of audits to see, make sure people are being honest about it. If you're renting the property, or if you're in the process of renovating it, or someone died in the family, and that's why it's vacant. So there's a bunch of exemptions. But um, the general idea is that it must be your principal residence. You don't have to be there every day of the year. You might be traveling or be on sabbatical, or, but you're, as long as it's your principal residence. So $30 million in the first year, 
mm-hmm. which is a completely new source of funding yep. to deal with the housing affordability. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just another example of, I think, issues cities are ill-prepared to deal with or kind of caught off guard. You know, who would have thought that global capital, mm-hmm. you know, would um, sort of influence our housing markets mm-hmm. in this way? Usually yeah. when I'm thinking about these, I'm thinking about small towns who are ill-prepared to deal with um, a variety of issues. But in this case, it's a, a, a city that may be the victim of its own success. Mm-hmm. We see this happening mm-hmm. certainly in New York, mm-hmm. Miami, other yeah. cities that attract uh, international interest. Yeah, cities are taking on all sorts of new challenges. I think 100 years ago, and we paved the roads or did something to make them passable, built them, picked up the garbage. Now we're using the tools that we have to get childcare built, to protect and build affordable housing, to address climate change taken on the opioid crisis. We've got one death per day in Vancouver. We're dealing with issues of gender and equity. So it's um, it's really amazing the role that cities are playing. You know, over half the world's population are living in cities, and that's increasing. So we got to get this right. And I think Vancouver has an opportunity to experiment. It's a really um, great size of a city, having come from Chicago. It's It's so big that it's it's hard to be nimble in the way um vancouver we were able to implement the the empty homes tax get it approved by the province and get it implemented relatively speaking in a short period of time so what we're doing to protect renters and to address just a bunch of the things that we talked about today vancouver i think is a is a really nice size for being able to experiment and then to help export some of the the lessons learned or or share cautions with with other places and we take that role seriously it's an opportunity for us to share with other cities so we're parts of the c40 network and and other networks as ways to share the lessons learned out of this experimentation that we're doing in vancouver i think that's such an important point because you'll probably hear every city claim that they're innovative or aspire to be innovative but they probably don't give themselves a long enough leash where they commit to a process of inquiry and are okay with failing. Because as you said, it's difficult to fail publicly and with a constituency, but um, you really can't advance or learn if you don't consider that aspect of innovation. Absolutely. We started something a couple of years ago called City Studio, which um, was a way for us to have a bit of an innovation lab within the city that harnessed the ingenuity and enthusiasm, the passion of our students in the community. Lots and lots of people come to Vancouver to learn. We've got amazing institutions of higher learning, and many of them don't apply those lessons or the learning process to the city. So we started with partners in the community city studio We gave them offices at city facilities, gave them some funding, and they created an innovation lab. So instead of going to Vienna for the semester or somewhere abroad, students can come to the city of Vancouver for the semester. And they would partner with city staff to look at problems that we're dealing with and come up with solutions and then implement the solutions. So they got to go through the permit process. They got to raise the funding for it. They actually have to, in that process, 
create an on-the-ground project. And hundreds of projects have happened. And most of them have been successful. And many of them have failed. And there's a certain level of understanding that the public, the media, um, that they have when it's a student project that failed rather than a city staff project that failed. And uh, that has given us a chance to learn from those projects and then mainstream a ton of them and chalk up some of them to an experiment that didn't work. But those students and bringing their new ideas, fresh perspectives to the city have really invigorated many of our longtime staff. It's helped us to find new potential staff to join us. Many of the students in school nowadays don't think government is the place they want to go. And so bringing them into City Hall and exposing them to passionate, excited staff doing really fun projects, changing the world from within city government, have opened many of their eyes to being a part of government. So that's been a really fun project for us. It's a number of years now we've been doing it, and City Studios expanding to cities across the world as other cities are looking at ways to experiment with their universities and colleges and, and get their students excited about working within the government to help solve the problems. Do you have an example of a success and or a failure that sticks out to you? Something that came out of City Studio? Yeah. Um, let's see. There was a project that students did kind of early on in City Studio. And they called it the Orphaned Spaces Project. But if you think of your own neighborhood or your own city, a road gets built or a building gets built and there's a little strip of land that's left over and it belongs to the city in most cases, but it's kind of orphaned. Maybe the transit system had a little sliver of land when they were building the elevated transit line or, and it kind of is a weedy and overgrown and no one really stewards it cares about it. It just is a bit of an eyesore, garbage piles up in it. So students identified that issue as we have all these orphan spaces. And then we have all these people living in high rises and more dense environments where they maybe don't have a yard or, and so they started to map orphan spaces in neighborhoods, created the orphan spaces project, and then came up with ways to activate those spaces, ways to enliven them. And, and got neighborhood groups to steward them. And so every project that City Studio does, they have to find a steward that will own the project for the long term. And so the Orphan Spaces Project became an approach that we did when we're doing neighborhood planning, is to identify what those types of spaces are in that neighborhood and find ways to activate them. So that was one that kind of changed how we do what we do in the city and um, got lots of people in the community excited about it. For a failure, I don't know if I'd put it as a failure so much as a lessons learned. We had a group that wanted to introduce campfires back into the city as a way to bring people together. We've got beautiful beaches and sunsets in Vancouver. I mean, it's, it's really quite beautiful. And so they wanted to introduce that experience of sitting around a campfire in a very dense urban environment. And so they went about doing that and 
working with the city and, of course, you know, the fire department and others raised all sorts of concerns with it. But we said, try a pilot. Let's let's give it a go. So we, cities often, you know, kind of, it's easy to say no because you see a lot of the problems that might come up. Instead of doing that, we said, well, let's do let's do some pilots, do a test. And so they went out to, to do it and got a ton of pushback from the neighboring community. And so for the students, it was very, and they were on the radio and they were really in the face of that conflict, which oftentimes the city gets in, is in the face of that conflict when you're trying to do something or you've got a proposal to do something. And then there's a lot of pushback from the community. And so for the students, they got to experience what that was like, where it wasn't the city saying, no, we were encouraging them to go and see if they could make it happen and work with the community to do that. Ultimately, they weren't able to do it largely because the community said, we don't, we don't want this. We don't want the smoke. We don't want the noise. We don't want the beer bottles left over. You know, whatever all those things would happen, they don't. They didn't want that. And so, for the students, I think it was kind of the campfire project went down in flames. Um, Pun intended. Yeah, yeah. But they, I think the students learned a lot through that, and it was a very important experience for them learning about urban interventions and how to implement them engage with the the neighborhood around that. Well, thank you for sharing those. City Studio sounds like something to check out for sure. And I am excited to hear that it's expanding to other places. So Vancouver is known for its diversity, beauty, sustainability. I'm wondering from your view as city manager, where are the opportunities to also address issues of equity and inclusion? Like you said, Vancouver is a big city and has, you know, its own issues. Um, is that on people's radars? And, and in your position as city manager, how can you influence progress on those issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much top of mind. I think about over 50% of our population, English is not the mother tongue. So we are a very diverse community, as you've said. And many of the immigrants to Vancouver are coming with money. So the equity issues are perhaps different than other communities, but the underlying challenges are probably not that different. The first thing I guess I'd say on the equity front is that it's a new area for us to be focusing on. We're now just creating an equity strategy for the city, but we are trying to very intentionally name the underlying challenges of racism, persistent racism that exist in our community, and the um, challenges that we have in addressing the opioid crisis and the housing crisis in Vancouver and the overlap of all of those. and really trying to take a gendered lens to it as well. We've got a recently adopted women's equity strategy. And so thinking about both within our own organization in terms of who gets promoted and who gets hired, but also in the community and and everything from safety of sex workers to supports for moms in the community and ability to get around with a stroller or a wheelchair. So 
just looking at kind of all of those issues from an intersectional lens and understanding how our work as a city can influence what's happening in the private sector, but also then how we can take those lessons to other cities. And um, the equity strategy that we're doing now is our first attempt to look at those kind of all together rather than in their own little silos. So we've created and adopted, council adopted a trans equity strategy. So looking at just signage at all of our community centers and pools and libraries on the you know, signage on the bathrooms, for instance. But that would be one kind of very discreet thing that would make someone feel more comfortable and welcome. But now we're kind of looking at it with racism in mind and unconscious bias and thinking about how that impacts the types of services that we offer. And so looking at our, for instance, our capital plan from an equity lens and understanding how traditionally underserved communities might still be underserved by the way that we do our capital planning and where we're building sidewalks and curb ramps and facilities for serving the community. So I guess just to to summarize it, I think we're kind of starting on the journey and are in learning mode and trying to engage with the community and, and figuring out how to learn from other places that are a few steps ahead of us and learn from lived experience, hearing what people in our own community have gone through. The, the highway that I mentioned to you was uh, the one section of it that was built uh, eliminated a neighborhood called Hogan's Alley, which is which was the African American, the Black community in Vancouver, was dispersed by that one little section of highway. And council has voted to remove that section of highway and rebuild a neighborhood there. And in doing so, we've worked very very closely with the black community to recreate, not recreate, I guess, but to create a new center for the black community in Vancouver. And uh, so the Hogan's Alley Stewardship Group has been a primary partner in helping to re-envision what that community, that neighborhood could be in the future, celebrating the black community, recognizing the racism that has existed, that, that does exist in the community, and thinking about how we can create housing and cultural spaces to recognize the past and look toward the future. There are some really exciting initiatives happening in the city. Another one I read about is the Greenest City Action Plan. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. The Greenest City Action Plan was prepared about 10 years ago, and it looked all around the world at leading sustainability efforts, greenest city efforts. And it was one of the reasons that I was hired to Vancouver was to help implement that plan, which hadn't been adopted by council yet, but was clearly a direction that the mayor and council at the time really wanted to go in. And so they had looked at leading efforts across the world and said, if we want to be the greenest city in the world, what do we need to do in each of these areas from green jobs and air quality and water quality and food and green buildings? And, um, adopted a plan to try to be a global leader. And that plan set the target of 2020. So 33% carbon reduction from 2007 levels, serious water reduction targets. And so I helped to oversee the implementation of the Greenest City Action Plan over the last decade. 
and it pushed a lot of our boundaries. It was um, really challenging in many areas. We were losing a lot of our urban tree canopy with development. And so, you know, looking at the negative directions that we were going and trying to reverse those. Also to work with the private sector and looking at green jobs and greening existing jobs. So that was a really exciting roadmap for us in the city. And for me, coming from Chicago, it was a real change of perspective. Much of what Vancouver was looking to were European examples and targets. So trying to learn from Copenhagen and places in Europe that had been a few steps ahead. So it was a changing kind of the, the model in a way. And so much of what was in the Greenest City Action Plan were looking at globally leading cities. And so we really wanted to set the target of being being one of them. And I think we've achieved that. Probably not the greenest city in the world, but we have the lowest greenhouse gas emissions for per capita of any city in North America at this point. And we've really been able to shift the overall vehicle miles traveled per capita. We've been able to very considerably reduce the fatalities on the streets. We've been able to move the, the target in many areas. And there's others that we haven't achieved our, our targets. Carbon is one of them. There, there really aren't that many low-hanging fruit anymore. It's a lot of very heavy lifting, like I mentioned with district energy facilities, for instance, and energy retrofits. A bunch of that stuff is has a longer time horizon than we were able to achieve. But we've got, as I said, kind of the new sets of targets and are not giving up. And um, water consumption is another one. We've got so much water that it's easy for people to think, oh, we don't need to conserve water. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is help educate the public about why it is important to still conserve those kinds of resources and the amount of energy that goes into capturing and pumping and treating. And by conserving water, we can we can reduce the need to build new reservoirs and capture uh, capture that and, and and save billions of dollars worth of investments. So that's a it's an ambitious plan, and it's been a real honor to work on it. And the the new mayor and council have reconfirmed their commitment to making Vancouver a very sustainable community and to address the climate crisis. They actually one of their first motions that they passed was a motion to declare a, a climate state of, of emergency and to direct staff to redouble our efforts to figure out how to get on track for reducing carbon emissions. And the IPCC has indicated we've got 12 years and that's on city timeframes. That's, that's not very long. So we're looking again at what, what more we can do. We are a relatively speaking, a small city, 650,000 people, but over 2 million in the region. And so part of what we need to figure out is how we can take the lessons that we've learned and share them with other communities. That's one way that we can help to influence what happens with carbon globally. Recently, I interviewed Josina Morita, who trained as an urban planner and is now a commissioner for the Water Reclamation District. And she grew up in California, and it really struck me the way she described coming from a place of scarcity, water scarcity, Mm. And moving to Chicago, a place of abundance, mm-hmm. and how it really does impact um, people's daily lives. You know, looking at the Great Lakes, you think, oh, you know, we've got plenty and mm-hmm. we've got it forever, and we don't really have to take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. So, as 2020 approaches, 
what's next with the Greenest City Action Plan? You guys updated it. We haven't holistically done that. We have set new targets for most of the areas that we're not achieving our, our goals. So our 2020 targets on climate will will meet by 2023, but we've set the 2030, 2040, and 2050 targets. And as I said, our goal to be 100% renewably powered before 2050 is is kind of taking the mantle of of our climate climate targets. And in that way, we're we're trying to shift from a reducing carbon emissions more to an increasing renewable energy and the use of renewable energy. So in some ways, shifting to a positive aspirational moonshot type of target it's it sounds i don't know what went through your mind when i said our target to be a 100 percent renewably powered city but when i first heard the that goal a i was daunted by it but even though i'm kind of an optimistic person it seemed a little bit impossible you think about everything from cooking your food in the morning to getting around on a bus to the construction workers I and mean, every way that we use fossil fuels in our communities but just imagine our cities without that noise and that pollution. And it's really quite exciting to think about the fact that our cities can do this. We, we have a plan in Vancouver to be a 100% renewably powered community. Whether we'll meet the target by the date that we set, maybe we'll meet it before, maybe a few years after, but we have a plan and we're working toward the plan and it integrates land use and transportation, district energy, energy use in our buildings, the types of buildings that we build. So that's, to me, it's really inspiring and exciting to think about ways that we can redefine how we use power in our communities and the ways that our communities can help to solve the climate crisis that we're dealing with. I mean, definitely thought better you than me. (laughs) (laughs) No, but inspired by by the commitment and we'll be excited to watch um, over the coming decades. I mean, in, in one sense, we don't have a choice, right? Um, but the barriers are many. So it is exciting. I think that's a good reminder. As I mentioned in your introduction, you are a published author. You wrote a book, Guide to Greening Cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering what are some of the lessons that listeners should hear from that book, either at the time you wrote it or now that you're a few years removed from it. You mentioned in the intro that I was also the co-founder of the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. And um, when I was in the mayor's office in Chicago, I was looking for places and people in similar positions as me to learn from. And I couldn't find them. And I was struggling a little bit with how to learn how to change a city from within. And the Urban Sustainability Directors Network stemmed from that frustration, starting to look for other people in similar positions that are trying to change cities from within, and started to find a few. And that position started to pop up more and more. And so we created a network of folks in the mayor's office, in the city manager's office, in the planning department, the people that are charged with changing the city from within to achieve the sustainability targets, the green or environmental targets, that created the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. It was a network of people working from within organizations, city organizations, 
So we started to get together, share experiences, lessons learned, most importantly, failures, things that as a city, it's not that easy to talk about publicly where we failed. But privately, we were able to share our experiences so that we could learn from each other. And the book really stemmed from that, telling the stories of people within government that are working on these issues. So the Guide to Greening Cities is was that. It was a guide. And I think it's pertinent for people studying about cities, nonprofits that are trying to influence cities, city councilors or mayors that are they got elected and have a desire to address climate crisis or flooding. So it really, the book tells the stories and some of the strategies, largely not the tactics, but the approaches. How do you work within an organization, sometimes 10, 20, 30,000 employees to create that kind of shift? And so it's interviews with people in cities across North America, big cities, medium-sized cities. On that note, I'm wondering what you may be reading now, books or um, articles, things that are influencing the way you're approaching your work, um, anything you should, would like to share with our listeners, as well as um, if people want to learn more about Vancouver and your work if there's any uh, resources you want to share with them of where to check it out. I'm reading a book right now, or I just finished a book called Decisive, which I really found influential. It's about how we make decisions. And we often, and I think it pertains to lots of spheres, not just cities. The focus certainly isn't cities, but how we look at problems how that defines the types of solutions that we come up with and how we make decisions about them. So that was uh, some, it was actually a book that I encouraged our whole leadership team to read and got it for everybody. So I'd, that's that's one that I think is a really good one. In terms of um, the city of Vancouver, we've got a great website, vancouver.ca. You can see a lot there about what we're doing. It's probably the best place if you're interested in what's happening at the city of Vancouver. The, I mentioned the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. They've got a great website as well. With, so it lives on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not, as, I'm not uh, very involved, but they are doing great work across North America. And the Urban Sustainability Directors Network has a lot of resources of examples, case studies. By working across so many cities in North America, they were able to find partnership opportunities and examples of things that multiple cities could do together. And so they've documented a bunch of that. So there's some great resources on that uh, on that website. And uh, I think, well, I mentioned the, the City of Vancouver website. If you're interested in any of the things we talked about today, there's a bunch more there. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Enjoyed getting to think about things from a different perspective. So thanks for that. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.